0: The light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Greetings podcast enthusiasts, and welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Kassanet, and I will be your host as always. Whether you like it or not, you're kind of stuck with me. And so today we're going to be talking about Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It coincides with section 18 in my book, if you're following along on that source, This is the second letter that John has written to the seven churches. This letter goes to uh, the saints in Smyrna, and it is the shortest letter of the uh, seven letters written by John. And In this particular uh, letter, there is no condemnation of the saints in Smyrna, just as there is no condemnation of the saints in Philadelphia. These were the only two cities that were not condemned by uh, the Savior in these seven uh, letters. So let me throw up our uh, world-famous map that shows the uh, seven cities. You'll notice that Smyrna is located on the coast of the Aegean Sea, about 40 to 50 miles north of Ephesus. It it rivaled Ephesus in commercial importance, had a great uh, harbor. It was also the center of fanatical emperor worship and the acclaimed birthplace of Homer, the famous Greek author. It's uh, located today in what is called the modern city of Ismar in Turkey, and if you want more about the kind of geopolitical history of this city, check out my podcast on uh, November 12, 2023, which is the Come Follow Me podcast number seven, and it gives the the history of this particular city in more detail than what I just gave you, but let's jump right into uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 which says quote and unto the angel of the church in smyrna write these things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive the reference to the angel in this verse has been changed by the joseph smith translation in this and every other letter to the word servant and so what we have here is essentially christ directing or writing through the Apostle John to the pastoral leader of the church in Smyrna. And there's general agreement that the guy who was the bishop at this time was a man by the name of Polycarp. Um, There's some doubt about that in some circles because if he was the bishop in Smyrna in 96 AD, it means he would have been the bishop for 60 years because his martyrdom came in 155 A.D., and so some people say, I don't think it was the same guy, but uh, I think all evidences tend to be to the contrary, (laughs) even though you stop and think about poor old Polycarp, a bishop for 60 years that ends with his martyrdom of all things. So bishops today, you can count your lucky stars that uh, you have kind of a five-year tenure and you don't end up dead at the end of uh, your call. So at any rate, the uh, the references to Polycarp as the uh, bishop in Smyrna is identified by multiple of the uh, Christian fathers. Now Polycarp was a guy that knew John personally and uh, Irenaeus who was the Bishop of Lyon in 177 AD indicates that Polycarp was actually a pupil of uh, John the Revelator and uh, so we get from him essentially a second-hand account of Polycarp's relationship to John the Revelator, because Irenaeus knew Polycarp, and then Polycarp was personally acquainted with John the Revelator. Now, uh, two of the Christian fathers, Tertullian and Jerome, both say that John actually ordained Polycarp to be the bishop in uh, Smyrna. Now, I have this quote uh, that uh, we find of a letter written by Polycarp, and it it says this, let the elders also be compassionate, merciful to all, bringing back to those that have wandered, caring for all the weak, neglecting neither widow, nor orphan, nor poor, close quote. I, I share that quote with you because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, Polycarp is the bishop in uh, Smyrna. He writes this letter telling the elders they need to be compassionate, and uh, you know, he could have been writing that letter today if he was a bishop in one of our wards. You know, I don't know if he had a similar letter to the that he wrote to the Relief Society. He probably didn't have to. They're pretty good with their ministry, but a reminder to the elders, hey, you guys need to get out and do your ministry. <laughs> So at any rate, uh, this kind of just suggests to me that uh, even though things change, uh, they tend to stay the same. Uh, Now, I mentioned that uh, Polycarp was uh, martyred. This occurred when he was 86 years old, and uh, although there are some differences in dating among certain scholars... I think the most consistent date, and what I think is probably the date, is that it occurred in uh, about 155 AD. Now, what's interesting about Polycarp's martyrdom is that three days before he was martyred, he actually dreamed that he was going to be burned alive. And so then three days later, he's arrested at the urging of the Jews in uh, Smyrna, And uh, we actually have a circular letter from the church of Smyrna that describes his martyrdom in uh, great detail. And so uh, according to this uh, record and to other accounts by the uh, church fathers, uh, Polycarp was arrested uh, by the Romans but at the urging of the Jews. He enters the amphitheater where proconsul Stratius Quadratus um, was talking to him. this guy sounds like he should be a mathematician, right? Stratus quadratus. But at any rate, so uh, the proconsul is basically trying to get Polycarp to renounce his faith and his testimony in Jesus Christ, because the proconsul really doesn't want to kill him. But if he, if he doesn't uh, essentially revile and renounce his uh, testimony of Christ, then, you know, he's kind of got no choice because the law at that time was that if there have been charges brought against the uh, Christians and they won't renounce, then uh, essentially uh, they can be put to death. And so the proconsul is faced with Polycarp, and he says to Polycarp, quote, swear by Caesar's fortune and I will release thee, revile Christ. And Polycarp's response to that was "Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me wrong. How then can I revile my king and my saviour now at that point the the Jews and there was a pretty good-sized audience undoubtedly started calling for him to be burned at the stake, and uh, and Quadratus uh, ultimately agreed, in essence, to avoid a riot among the people there in the cities. And so, uh, as soon as he decreed uh, death by burning for Polycarp, the Jews, in a frenzied mode, kind of ran off to start gathering wood for the fire, even though it was the Sabbath day. And so, um, you know, <clears throat> It's important to understand, of course, that if you want to kind of get a true picture, it's not like they just had stacks of wood sitting around the city waiting for this event. And so when the Jews run off to go start uh, looking for wood, they they wouldn't have gone outside the city looking for wood. They would have gone to places where they knew people had wood stocks uh, that they could get. And you can just imagine them running to maybe a place that uh, was uh, a place that served food of some kind that they did some type of uh, cooking or something like that, or even to their own homes, uh, where they might have had a little bit of a stock of wood and and everybody 's running kind of door to get to I need the wood, I need some wood. You can just imagine this frenzy that existed in telling people they 're going to bur- they 're going to burn polycarp they 're going to burn polycarp um, and so uh, they rush off to the uh, back to the amphitheater where the wood was uh, then piled up, and they were about to secure polycarp. With nails and this is what he said as he was about to be secured by the nails he said quote let me remain as I am for he that has enabled me to brave the fire will so strengthen me that without your fastening me with nails I shall unmoved endure its fierceness he also added uh, kind of a prayer or supplication to God saying quote Father of thy well-beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of thee, I bless thee that thou hast thought me worthy of the present day and hour to have a share in the number of the martyrs and in the cup of Christ unto the resurrection of eternal life, both of the soul and body, in the incorruptible felicity of the Holy Spirit." and that uh, was what we find uh, recorded in the writings of the uh, historian Eusebius who's again someone who's known as a uh, Christian father so <clears throat> uh that that brought about the uh, the death of uh, Polycarp his grave is still in a cemetery at Smyrna or modern day Ismar. uh contemporaneous uh, accounts by various eyewitnesses also state that uh the uh, Christians did gather up his bones, more precious to us than jewels and finer than pure gold, and we laid them to rest in a spot suitable for the purpose. Close quote. Now, some people think that uh, with the death of Polycarp, came what is referred to as the veneration of saints Um, and the reason this occurred was that polycarp you can imagine 60 years if he truly was the bishop of smyrna throughout this entire period was a much beloved person. Go on Wikipedia, you can kind of check him out and you'll get some sense of the magnitude of this man that I'm kind of only describing in part. Um, But uh, he was highly venerated. And in fact, uh, Quadratus was concerned about giving the bones of this man to the Christians, for fear that uh, they would uh, do something and uh, steal them away, and and make an argument that uh, he was resurrected as the Savior had done, and in the image of Christ, and so um, <clears throat> he is uh, officially venerated by both the Greek Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, and J. Reuben Clark believes that practice may have actually begun with the martyrdom of Polycarp because he was such a highly revered uh, individual within the Church. So we have the death of Polycarp, and uh, I think there's some good ground to believe that uh, with the death of Polycarp, also came the death of the church at Smyrna. It was uh, the last Christian stronghold in Asia Minor, and it finally fell to the Turks and to the Islamic religion in 1424 A.D. So even though Polycarp was killed in 155 A.D., and the church kind of goes away um, and falls into apostasy, uh, it was still a pretty stronghold of Christian believers, although they were a little bit off base in their beliefs, um, and uh, it, it became such a stronghold and the Turks had such a difficult time uh, overcoming it and defeating the uh, the Christian religion and it, it was referred to by the Turks as infidel Smyrna. <laughs> and so this uh, longevity and endurance is kind of consistent with john's letter that this city was not condemned for wickedness uh, in 96 a.d so moving on one of the phrases in uh, verse eight says these things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive and so this again is uh, john's writing to his friend polycarp but it is a formal salutation from the Savior this is indicated by the title and name of first and last meaning he who is eternal it also says uh, which was dead and is alive meaning he will die no more forever he was someone who suffered death by his persecutors and was then resurrected from the grave and so we see some similarities between the Savior and these Saints in Smyrna are much in the image of the uh, Savior himself. And so when we see the events in the life of the Savior and what happened to him, this is particularly relevant to the saints at Smyrna, who were experiencing severe persecution and even death in much the way that the uh, Savior did. Now, if you go back and kind of compare what is stated here in verse 8 about the first and the last, dead and alive, you can kind of go back and compare that to Revelation one eighteen, where Christ described himself as, He that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore and so what i mentioned in a prior podcast uh, that i did on january 21st of 2024 it covers uh, revelation 119 through 20 where john was given his final charge to write um these things match. Uh, What is stated in the description given of Christ in Revelation 1 then repeats itself in each of the seven letters, some characteristic or attribute of Christ that he originally identified in Revelation 1. Now we get the repetition of that here in uh, Revelation 2, for this letter and in all subsequent letters again there's there's this shared uh, system of attribution of the uh, Savior and so all of these things have particular relevance as Smyrna and one of the things that is kind of again not a coincidence John uh, writing from and through the Savior, Uh, essentially knows everything, all the attributes of the city, and he uses the attributes of the city in the context of these letters. So everything has special meaning. And in this case, where there's this reference to being dead and alive, there was a tradition uh, that the god Dionysius. Um, who is the god of wine, was believed to have been killed and come back to life at Smyrna. So, so you have these these great ironies in uh, what is described in these letters of something real life that the people believed about the, the god of wine who came back to life. So at any rate, the other thing about the, this particular salutation in this letter is the fact that it contains a poetic writing style called antithetical parallelism. And uh, so you see this in the words, in this phrase, in fact, first and last, dead and alive. And it's a very common form of poetry in the book of Proverbs. And so the, the basic idea is that the second clause is the converse of that of the first where you have first and last dead and alive okay so it doesn't mean that these things are necessarily contradictions that is the first and second phrases um, such as a thesis and then an antithesis uh, it can be opposite aspects of the same idea and uh, these types of poetry Uh, this antithetical asymmetrical system can consist of two, four, or six lines. And here we have two lines where the second line is an opposite echo, if you will, or an asymmetrical counterpart of the first part. And so you have this kind of comparative and converse clauses that convey description of uh, Jesus Christ. Now, this poetic form kind of allows or, in fact, forces the reader to essentially make a mental comparison when you see these kinds of things, The, the poet that mirrors the opposition of all things, if you will. And so John writes his entire letter to the Smyrnian saints in this style. And so we got four different illustrations of how this occurs in Revelation 8, through ten. And so um, I'm just putting up a little graphic on the uh, screen so that you can get a sense of how this is working in these particular four verses. But in verse eight, you have the first and the last which was dead and is alive. And we, we kind of talked about that. And then the second one is where the Savior says, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. Then in verse nine, I know the blasphemy of say they are Jews and are not. So you get, again, the the opposite. And then finally in verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. All right, so all of these things represent this concept of uh, antithetical parallelism. And so as we talk about this letter and how it, it basically illustrates this paradoxical truth that the righteous dead receive eternal life, And the paradox is that the resurrection reverses the effects of death. Uh, There is always a physical reversal, but it can also be a spiritual reversal as well. And we're going to talk about that next week when we get into this concept of the uh, second death. Uh, But it it is a comforting thought to know, uh, as we learn here in the letter from Smyrna, that death really always ends in life. So the persecutors may kill the physical body, but the saints need never fear the second death or hell. Uh, Those born twice will die only once. Those born only once will die twice all right? I'm using my own little (laughs) antithetical parallelism with you twice. So what, what I'm basically saying is that if you are born physically and then you are born again spiritually, you really only die once physically because you will always be spiritually alive. But those born only once, meaning those born physically only and who are never born or reborn spiritually, they get to die twice. So that's the whole concept uh, of this uh, process in this poetic form that we're talking about here. And the promise is certain in terms of life, uh, spiritual life and physical life in the resurrection, because the promise comes from one who in fact died and lived again. And so he has the power to raise all of us. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the word Smyrna itself, or the name Smyrna. It actually means bitter, but is related to the word myrrh. Uh, Now, myrrh is kind of an ordinary perfume, but it's used in the anointing oil of the tabernacle and for embalming dead bodies in that day. So, Smyrna then becomes the church of myrrh, or bitterness, And uh, this is consistent with the fact that these saints were persecuted to death, but the imagery is that they're lying embalmed, in the spices of their suffering, and so more than any other church, uh, this appears to be what is going on in Smyrna. And in this, we see the image of Christ. Uh, they were experiencing bitterness or suffering, but their faithful testimony was like a myrrh or a sweet sweet perfume to God. And affliction is bitter, but it's also Salutary, meaning it's something that is unwelcome, but it has good effects. And I kind of liken that to my uh, new efforts since I turned 65 of trying to do more exercising. Thanks it's a, it's a it's a bitter affliction that i'm forced to go through but i know that it has good effects so uh, we're going to persevere right and so uh, <clears throat> the anointing myrrh of uh, smyrna essentially preserved the elect from corruption and this uh, is life beyond death uh, is also alluded to in Smyrna's geopolitical history. This was a city that was destroyed many times and rose again to life. And so check out my podcast on the uh, Come Follow Me episode number seven from November 12th if you want to get more details about that. But the entire history of this city fits this theme of being dead and alive. And that came as a result of earthquakes, of uh, plagues, and from wars Things of this nature so eventually the church also died with the martyred saints at the hands of of Romans as well as Jews and so let's talk a little bit about kind of what was going on here essentially Rome uh, was persecuting them mostly at the behest of the Jews their motives meaning the Romans uh, were basically political in nature Um, and so for example Uh, you had the concept of uh, emperor worship, and uh, the religions, even though they had the freedom to worship the way that they wanted, and the Romans wouldn't largely interfere with them if they were known and established religions within the realm, um, they still were required to burn incense before statutes to the Roman gods, and they had this Emperor worship well of course the um, the the Christians and the Jews both refused to do this The difference is that the Jews were a recognized religion, so when the Roman Empire came into power in you know by one forty b c or so um, at that point in time, the Jews already existed as an independent people and nation, and they had their religion, which the Romans says, okay, come on in, uh, you can keep your religion, but uh, they would want them to do things to honor the Roman gods as well. So, But they got a pass because they existed as a known religion. The Christians, on the other hand, were a new religion, not recognized by the Roman Empire, so they didn't get the same pass. And uh, even though the Christian religion grew out of Judaism Christ being a Jew of course Um, if the Jews wanted to uh, get the Christians they would deny that the Christians were Jewish or that they came from Judaism. So they would make the distinction between Christians, and truly the distinction exists, but if you really wanted to kind of uh, go easy on these uh, Christians, you could say, well, it is an outgrowth of um, the Jewish religion, and therefore we can recognize that. And so uh, that uh, is kind of the problem that existed, is that in some circles that kind of recognition was uh, allowed Uh, and permitted, but in others, the distinction was made, which was bad news for the Christians. And so the Roman tolerance for the Christians really began to change in about 49 A.D., when there were uh, large Jewish riots and uh, Christians in Rome, and the emperor at that time was a guy by the name of Claudius. He basically banned both groups from Rome in AD 49, and this then set the stage for the Neronian persecution that really erupted in 64 AD at the time of the great conflagration or burning of Rome that was caused by Nero. And of course, he blamed it on the Christians. And so after that point in time, being a Christian basically became a capital offense. And the Jews used this against Christians by making anonymous tips, saying, this guy's a Christian. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if attention was brought to them in this manner, then uh, the Romans tended to act against the uh, their Christian people in the Roman Empire. And so what we find here in the case of Smyrna is that the Jews were more murderous than even the Romans, and a polycarp is a pretty good illustration of that. And uh, these imperial laws essentially against Christianity when pressed by Jewish complainants were uh, carried out, as that uh, well illustrates. Let's move on now to uh, Revelation 2 9 that says, Quote, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Close quote. So the Savior doesn't uh, mince words here. He's all-knowing. He is omniscient. He knows the works uh, of the saints in Smyrna. And this same statement is made in all seven letters. The Savior then goes on to say, "I know thy tribulation." So let's talk for just a second about that. This is, of course, tribulation arising from persecution, including. The false accusations of the Jews against the uh, Christians. So there was a large Jewish community in uh, Smyrna and For reasons that I've mentioned already, they did not have to patronize the imperial cult because their religion had been accepted by Rome, but they would not cooperate with the Christian faith from enjoying the same recognition. They make that distinction, and so the uh, saints in Smyrna uh, were forced to endure Great Tribulation, which in Greek kind of means to rub or to press or to squash it's uh has the connotation of harassment, distress and affliction. And so this persecution of the saints uh, by the Jews was very deliberate, it was very malicious. It amazes me sometimes that uh Polycarp survived as long as he did being the leader of the Christian movement. And this is just me talking a little bit my own supposition, but I suspect that the reason he was able to survive so long was he was a well-beloved person. Even though he was Christian, he was loved, he was revered. Um, And I think it was, uh, a put Rome and the proconsul in a difficult position to go after Polycarp because this would create a great deal of tumult and an uprising and riots in the city. You kill Polycarp, and that is not going to be a good thing for uh, relations between uh, christians jews roman everybody loves this guy so leave him alone for you know some 60 years and then ultimately met his fate Um, and it would be interesting i don't i've never really seen anything about uh, the reaction in the city after that to whether that was the case or not but i suspect that that's why he was able to survive in this city for as long that he did now in verse 9 we also have the statement i know thy poverty now the word used here for poverty in greek means abject poverty possessing absolutely nothing and so that's kind of the image it's not like they were just you know uh, below the middle class they were really at the bottom of the barrel and the difficulty of course was trying to make a living in this pagan city there were no jobs available through the guilds because uh, Christians couldn't belong to the guilds because they practice idolatry and immorality in their meetings and it's probably also highly likely that uh, the Jews in the city uh, persuaded many to boycott the businesses and shops um, that were owned by Christians um, because they were hostile to the Jews and to uh, Gentiles both and so Essentially, that's what's going to give rise to a lot of poverty. But in addition to that, uh, because the Jews were, uh, or excuse me, the Christians had this uh, outlawed religion, it was customary for the Romans to confiscate properties of accused saints when they imprisoned them. And so they had this loss of earthly goods uh, because of the Romans uh carrying out uh, the imperial law at the behest of the Jews. This loss of earthly goods, however, caused the saints to be rich in spirit and in heavenly things, and these things are frequently united. We see it all the time, uh, that poverty promotes and does not hinder favor with God and favor for God. And so many who are rich in temporal things we find tend to be rather poor, in spiritual things. And so, uh, even though the uh, saints in Smyrna were very poor, the Lord recognized this uh, great uh, spiritual richness that existed among the people. Another phrase that we find in uh, verse 9 is the statement, I know the blasphemy. Now, typically the word blasphemy means kind of this uh, evil speaking of or dishonoring of God, but it really is broader and it's used in a little bit broader context here. It can include any kind of calumny or evil speaking, abuse, some type of railing accusation against anyone, a showing of contempt. It can include slander, as was uh, very prevalent here in uh, Smyrna, which is a word that kind of refers to an evil omen. It is any kind of impious or irreverent speech against God, uh, reproach, derision. And so what we have here is essentially these railing accusations by Jews uh, against the Christians, which in effect and by extension caused the name of Christ to be blasphemed Among Gentiles. And so their bitter opposition uh, came to cause the name of Christ to be held in contempt. And that's why this is a blasphemy. The actions of the Jews against the Christians are really an action against Jesus Christ himself. Now it's kind of interesting that, uh, I think I've mentioned this before that the New Testament that we have today is of Greek origin and so uh, you have these various versions of Greek manuscripts that have been copied and recopied and as the translators and and writers and recorders of these Greek manuscripts were giving the information uh, they would sometimes write marginal notes about what the words actually meant and so here the word blasphemy if you look in the marginal notes of some of the Greek manuscripts, you'll find the word reviling in the place of blasphemy. And this is the way that it, for example, in the revised version of the New Testament, which is a one of the many different translations of the Bible, uh, you find them inserting the word reviling instead of the word blasphemy. But whether it be blasphemy as I've described it, a reviling, it's uh, clear that the Christians of Smyrna, were slandered and imprisoned, based on and because of the influence of the Jewish community on the Roman overlords, and so uh, the Jews would report them for refusing to take part in emperor witness, and uh, this is one of the reasons why these Jews uh, were so vehement against the Catholic, against the Christians. Uh, the Savior calls them the synagogue of Satan, and the same name is attached to the Jews in Philadelphia who were also uh, persecuting the Christians in that city as well. And so, the people who betrayed uh, the the Christians to the provincial officials were called delatores or informers. And so, uh, if the uh, the delatores did something to report that, uh, hey, this Christian living here, they won't come worship uh, the uh, the idols and the Roman gods, and so uh, that then essentially led to uh, the real difficulties, as uh, I have discussed. Now, it's also noteworthy that uh, we're talking here about blasphemy, and that's why I kind of tend to prefer, prefer this word to the word reviling, because blasphemy is a word that the Jews held to be a crime of the greatest detestation. Uh, if you blasphemed, then you would be punished with the most summary and humiliating death. And so we it kind of harkens back to this image of how the Jews in Judea condemned Christ for the crime of blasphemy because he said he was the Son of God. And now some 30, 60 years later, essentially you have the Jews of Smyrna, who are Jews by birth, but not spiritually, and they are committing the same type of blasphemy that the Jews of Judea had done six decades earlier. And so this is why Christ calls them, the synagogue of satan and so keep in mind that john is writing here to a predominantly christian audience who would have the crucifixion on their mind that was based on this crime accused crime of jesus of blasphemy i have to insert the word accused of course um <clears throat> because Christ did not blaspheme when he said he was the Son of God, because he in fact was. And so therefore it can't constitute a blasphemy. But that's essentially kind of the mindset uh, that is going on, are these blasphemies by them which say they are Jews and are not. Now, what that essentially means is that they are people of Jewish extraction. They are descendants of Abraham. They profess to be... Jews based on their bloodline, but they are not true Jews. And so uh, this is kind of a uh, a bitter reproach for these Jews, and it's very severe language that essentially says, you might have the Jewish bloodline, but this is not the spirit of the Jewish religion. And so think about uh, Luke chapter 3, 8, which states, quote, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For verily I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Close quote. And so those two things kind of go together. Yeah, you can say that you're uh, essentially uh, the offspring of Abraham, but uh, you know better than a bunch of rocks over here. that I can do better with these rocks. <laughs> so essentially, they're not worthy to be called Jews, they're not worthy to be called the covenant people, they're not worthy to be called members of the house of Israel and children of promise. All of these things are associated with the concept of what it means to be Jewish and Judaism. Now if we then look at uh, John sixteen two, the Savior warns that the conditions that the Jew that the Christians face in Smyrna are exactly those that have been predicted. And John sixteen two says, quote, they shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service, Close quote. So, as predicted 60 years earlier by the Savior, this is the mentality of the Jews that the Smyrnian saints were faced with. Uh, this is the nature of their blasphemy, that if you kill a Christian, you're actually doing God a favor. And so, not a good time to be living in Smyrna, undoubtedly, and so this is why the Savior then refers to these Jews who worship in the synagogue—the synagogue of Satan. That's the kind of mentality that uh, Satan would possess and was possessed by the Jews in that date. So let's let's do a couple of uh, what I'll call synagogue basics. Um, let's talk about what a synagogue is before we get to this idea that in this day and age. Uh, in Smyrna, it would be considered the synagogue of Satan. So a synagogue, of course, is a Jewish place of uh, worship. It's also where the Jews heard words uh, which reproached the Christians, and so they were essentially places for the indoctrination of Jews against the Christians. And, you know, I see what's going on today in in the United States and in other places, and and what you see on our college campuses is this uh, tremendous degree of anti-Semitism, and so the tables are a little bit reversed here from the way that it was with the indoctrination of Jews against Christians, and today we have this indoctrination Against uh Jews by others on college campuses, and so that that's a little bit I see some similarities in uh in what's going on, albeit in a reverse kind of fashion, so the synagogue uh essentially originally the word denotes the concept of an assembly or congregation, and so there probably was a physical building. In Smyrna, that was a synagogue where the Jews worshiped God according to the Mosaic traditions. And what we'd have to say at that point were vain traditions because the law of Moses had been fulfilled with the coming uh, of Christ and his sacrifice and atonement. So this is not the place where Christians could worship. Can you imagine putting those two together at the same time? I guess they'd have to have uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't meet in those buildings. But if they did, essentially what you'd have is you the Jews can meet at 9 o'clock and the Christians can meet at 10.30 or maybe just so we keep them entirely separated. Christians, you come at noon. So it didn't happen that way. In fact, the Christians, of course, were supposed to be meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week, which was kind of in transition still in 96 AD. They hadn't fully shifted over to worshiping on Sundays. And part of the problem was, as soon as you start worshiping on Sunday, everybody knows you're Christian, because everybody else is worshiping on the Sabbath. And so there's this kind of reluctance to put yourself out there, in a sense. And it would be another reason why it would be easy for the Jews to say, hey, these Christians aren't Jewish. They're not part of the Jewish religion. See, they don't even meet on the same day that we meet on. And so essentially, that's where we encounter some of these problems. Now, the synagogue was also a place of judicial authority. Essentially, in today's vernacular, we'd say that's where you could go and uh, have your grievances brought before the justice of the peace for uh, villages. Uh, and there were actually three magistrates who were chosen from the principal uh, directors of the synagogue who would be the, quote, what I'm calling the justice of the peace. And and this was their local uh, Sanhedrin. They had power to administer 40 stripes for those who were guilty of some violation of the law and so uh, they would be beaten and by the second century AD the rule was that you'd receive 13 strokes on the breast and then 26 strokes on the back now I say 40 stripes there's always 40 stripes less one because of course (laughs) the concept is we're we're not going to give you the full 40 because we're so merciful all right. Um and uh, in that vein, uh the rule was that the smiter who was giving what was the 39 lashes was required to strike as hard as they possibly could. So I, I failed to see the mercy in one uh, one less strike, but okay, uh you know, it is what it is. So this is what the savior also had predicted about the things that would happen uh, to Christians in Matthew 10:17, when he said quote but beware of men for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues close quote and the councils here of course is referring to the uh, local Sanhedrin including the Jewish courts that were held in the synagogue and so uh, these individuals had power to seize and arrest and to send for trial also before the larger Sanhedrin that met at Jerusalem, should the uh, case uh, exist. Okay, so now we come to the point of taking the these concepts that we've talked about with regard to the synagogue and translating that into this notion that Christ uses when he says these are the synagogues of Satan. It basically means that these not-Jews, people who were Jews, but really weren't Jews, uh, essentially they were serving the interests of Satan as agents of Satan's. And so um, these services in the synagogues were essentially pretended services to God, and due to their hypocrisy, um, Christ considered them to be places of worship uh, of Satan. Uh, this language is similar to something we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you'll remember, the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were um, ancient writings that were maintained by the Essenes, which was an orthodox group um, uh, that separated themselves from the mainstream Jews. So the Essenes were Jewish, but they were very orthodox Jewish. And they considered the, the Jewish religion in Jerusalem uh, to be the lot of Belial, which is Satan. And so uh, you see some truth in that here with what's going on with the uh, the Jews in Smyrna and their synagogue of Satan. It essentially comes down to the fact that, G- that Satan... Was their spiritual father. They had become the children of the devil. And this also was predicted by the Savior in John chapter 8 in three separate verses 41, 42, and 44, where Jesus was talking to the Jews that rejected him, saying, Ye do the deeds of your father. If God were your father, ye would love me. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. And so that those were the words of the Savior to uh, the Jews in his days. And he was speaking to the Pharisees more than anybody who professed to serve God, but their actions showed who they really served, and that was, of course, uh, Satan. Okay, so the Jews used the religious and judicial functions of this synagogue of Satan to incite the Jews to persecute Christians. And so you have this college of elders who presided o- were presided over by the chief or ruler of the synagogue. These elders were called pernicium, which means pastors or shepherds who rule over the flock. And they essentially managed the affairs of the synagogue. They had the powers of excommunication. And uh, they had this uh, official duty to minister, um, and that's uh, referred to as sheliak in Greek, which kind of answers to the term apostles which means sent okay and so all of these religious and civil observances that were occurring in the synagogues this indoctrination as i've kind of described it were antichrist and by 85 AD the liturgy of the synagogue in Jerusalem is included in this phrase quote may the nazarenes by nazarenes we're here talking about uh jewish christians so says quote may the nazarenes And the heretics be suddenly destroyed and removed from the book of life. And so that is essentially the type of uh, indoctrination that uh, the Jews were receiving in the synagogue, probably including the synagogue of Satan located in Smyrna. So this is essentially the uh, the nature of the blasphemy that i talked about a little bit ago they essentially applied a sacred name uh to an unholy and illegitimate end and it includes the jewish name or judaism it includes the jewish synagogue and so uh elder bruce r had this to say with regard to the practices and uh, other things that were occurring in the synagogues at this time he said quote In the process of time, the synagogues became houses of hate and persecution rather than houses of learning and true worship. In those sacred spots where sermons had attested to the saving power of the promised Messiah, cries of anguish would now be heard from the lips of true believers as the scourger's lash cut their flesh, by rejecting Jesus and opposing the truth, the congregation of Israel became the congregation of unbelief, of hatred, of evil, of Lucifer. They became, as the scriptures recites, the synagogue of Satan. Close quote. So let's move on now to uh, Revelation 2.10 uh, because I can't really... Uh, <laughs> say much about that that pretty much says it all so in this verse it says quote fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer behold the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried and ye shall have tribulation 10 days be thou faithful unto death and i will give thee a crown of life and we again see that uh, um antithetical uh, verse uh, here, faithful unto death, crown of life, as we discussed before. Now this verse kind of answers the age-old question of why righteous people suffer. And Christ is here speaking about this paradox, and notice in this verse, he doesn't give any promise of exemption from the suffering, and this is to a church that stands uncondemned. Christ had nothing bad to say about the saints in Smyrna, and so this, these are these are very righteous people, and yet uh, they're going to suffer. And He offers them no promise that that's not going to occur. And in fact, He kind of says it is going to occur. Um, and the the lesson to learn is that righteous suffering need not be feared because the sufferer will ultimately but glorified, and so I'm going to cite three different verses to basically convey this idea of what is required for sainthood, um, and ultimately to be glorified in the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. We begin with Mosiah 3.19, which states that, quote, be willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child, Doth submit to his father. Close quote. In First Peter 4:12, we have, quote, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing had happened to you. Close quote. And finally, in Hebrews 12:11, says, quote, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth. The peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Close quote. So, in all three of these verses, we have this concept that righteous suffering is something that we must endure as a child who submits to his father. And this should come as no strange thing to us. As as Peter says, what did you expect? You know, we've been warned about this. We've been told it's not a strange thing. And uh, in Hebrews, where Paul is, of course, talking about the, uh, the, even though the chastening doesn't seem to be a very pleasant thing, nevertheless, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Um, And so we get the same idea conveyed to us about how trials and tribulations are things of a small moment in Doctrine and Covenant, section 122 verses 7 and 8. These, this comes to us, of course, from uh, the Prophet Joseph Smith who suffered for uh, several months in Liberty Jail. And after he kind of says, why am I having to go through this? The Lord said, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Close quote. And so that's the that's the hard but true sayings that we encounter uh, in uh, these verses to Smyrna and in many other places in the Scriptures, and they are all paradoxical. It doesn't seem like suffering somehow is going to glorify us. It just seems like something we have to uh, endure. But the sufferers and the endurers will be glorified as Christ was glorified. James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, who died by stoning, said before his death, he said, quote, count it all joy when you fall into many afflictions, close quote. That we've seen the Joseph Smith translation version of James 2.1. Okay, uh, so let's go on and talk a little bit more about how some of these tribulations come about. In the next phrase, in uh, verse 10, it says, The devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. Now, this is stated by Christ with a great experience that uh, I think uh, is well mentioned and described by Neal A. Maxwell in his book called All These Things Shall Give The Experience. He says, quote, Thus, the compassion of the divine Jesus for us is not the abstract compassion of a sinless individual who would never so suffer. Rather, it is the compassion and empathy of one who has suffered exquisitely, though innocent, for all our sins, which were compounded in some way we do not understand. Though he was sinless, Yet he suffered more than all of us. We cannot tell him anything about suffering. Close quote. Again, uh, a good explanation of the type of empathy that Jesus has for the suffering that uh, we go through, and it's something ultimately that is designed to uh, test our faith and to demonstrate whether our faith is is genuine. Uh, in other words, do we give it lip service, or do we kind of what I say? <laughs> put our money where our mouth is, or by our actions, we demonstrate that our faith is genuine. And Satan, of course, was allowed to uh, test the Savior as well. And uh, one other person that I want to quote for you is a guy by the name of Justin Martyr. Now, he's called Justin Martyr because he was martyred. I don't think his last name was Martyr. Um, But uh, he was Justin the Martyr, and we kind of just, you know, shortened that up to be Justin Martyr. Now, what I have to say about Justin before I say what his quote is, Justin was a guy who was a little bit off base as one of the Christian fathers in terms of his beliefs. He had a fairly strong Gnostic background and and believed in a lot of Hellenist type of uh, policies and teachings uh, that were brought into the Christian. church. And so even though he's considered a Christian father and one of the leaders of the early Christian church, he he really did not have the true doctrines clearly in place. He was more of a philosopher, but uh, an influential philosopher. But I like his quote, it's, even though he's a little off base. I'm going to tell you what it is. He says, quote, it is our maxim that we can suffer harm from none Unless we be convicted as doers of evil or proved to be wicked, you may indeed slay us, but hurt us you cannot. Close and again, that's a guy who's a little bit off base in his teachings, but died for his faith in Jesus Christ, um, albeit a little bit off base. And uh, and that is kind of the essence of uh, what martyrdom is all about. The body can be killed, but uh, the spirit can never be harmed uh, for these type of people. So the devil also, in, in verse 10, we are told will cast some of the Smyrnians into prison. And we, of course, recognize we're talking about this because we're supposed to liken the scriptures to ourselves, and so the devil shall cast some of us into prison in modern terms as well, and that can be a, a spiritual type of prison, and possibly, and in very likely coming days, into uh, real prisons, and uh, so essentially what this is telling us is that when the devil casts you into prison, is really the devil who is the accuser acting through Jewish accusers, or in modern terms through accusers of any kind of false religion. And so we recognize from the writings of Paul that our conflict is not merely with flesh and blood, but with the rulers of darkness of this world. And it's uh, all these public authorities who are hearkening to the devil's voice, casting uh, people of faith into prison. And the devil acts with hostility, through his human agents, who, in the case of the Smyrnian church, were the Jews. And in our modern uh, case, his instrumentalities are far-ranging um, and uh, have the same type of influence. Now, the Smyrnian saints were also told in Revelation 10, ye shall have tribulation ten days. There are multiple differing interpretations of what this phrase means. Some think, well, this is going to be a long period of time, as in ten days of years, when years are considered to be prophetic years. Um, Others think that the ten has reference to ten separate persecutions that the uh, Smyrnian saints went through, and they can identify various emperors in the Roman Empire who were the, the 10 people who instigated these persecutions against the Smyrnians, and other people think, yeah, it's 10 days literal. So <laughs> we're kind of all over the map, but realistically, we have to keep in mind that the number 10 is a symbolic number. Uh, it relates to completeness or the wholeness of a part, uh, and I've talked about this in uh, prior podcasts where I talked about the symbolism and the uh, the meaning of uh, numbers and things like that, that you can go back and take a look at. But the bottom line is, in a symbolic sense, the period of 10 days refers to a time period that could be long or short, because it's really not expressing uh, 10 as a uh, duration. It's really more about quality and quantity and intensity of the persecutions and tribulations that would be faced by the Christians in Smyrna. You see an example of this in the Ten Plagues of Egypt. Uh, the number ten was not coincidental. It was chosen for a specific reason because it represents this concept in terms of plagues being the whole of a part. These the Egyptians weren't completely wiped out, even though these plagues were really, really intense and bad. Uh, ultimately, they were ten in number because this is just the whole. This is just a part of the whole of what could have happened to you that would completely annihilate you, and so we have ten. And it's, again, it doesn't have reference to how long did the ten plagues of Egypt last. It has to do with their quality, quantity, and intensity. And that's what's being talked about here in this verse as as well. So the bottom line is, and speaking symbolically, this tribulation was going to be a complete testing of the saints' faith in Smyrna. And the test was going to be very thorough, ten in nature. And so uh, we also have to keep in mind that uh, even though the uh, Smyrnian saints uh, endured very, very severe tribulations, this 10 days uh, is symbolically short when compared with the length of eternity. And that's the trade-off that is being made. It's is a short, relatively short, And sharp period of time. It's also fixed by God. Okay, He's uh, the master of everything, and uh, and so that is essentially what this is meaning. Now, we have an allusion in this uh, verse back to Daniel and the testing of he and his friends, which was also a period of ten days. But in that case, it was a literal ten days in which they were allowed to eat pulse rather than the king's meat. Uh, and at the end of the 10 days, they took a look at Daniel, looking up one side and down the other. <laughs> you know, maybe he was a model. He walks down the uh, the gangplank or what. <laughs> I, I guess it's not a gangplank. But whatever it is, the models walk down the runway, the runway. Uh, you know, you could just see Daniel and his friends walking down the runway. Wow, these guys look pretty good after 10 days. But at any rate, um, that's what the illusion is to here in uh in the verse on smyrna okay now it also tells us in this verse an admonition to uh, be faithful unto death uh, so on the one hand, the 10 days kind of seems to express a consoling limitation of time. Uh, it's not going to be the worst of all things. It's not going to be the whole. It's going to be a part of the whole in terms of the tribulation. So there's some measure of consolation in that. Uh, it might even be some kind of hope that uh, it's not going to last that long. We can endure every anything. Uh, so this is talking about them being cast into a spirit, into prisons and things like that. But then notice that in this phrase, it says, be faithful unto death. Uh, And we have to uh, talk about this as, it sounds like a message of martyrdom. (laughs) So we're telling you, you're going to have these 10 days of tribulations, and then uh, you just need to be faithful until you die. But it's not really even the word until, because it says even unto Okay, so the word is unto. So if it said, be faithful until you die, we hear that all the time. And and that the, to us doesn't invoke some type of message that my de- death is imminent or that uh, I'm going to be killed for my faith. At like, some point in time, I'm going to die, and I just need to be faithful until that time comes. But here, the word is even unto death. So be faithful even unto death. In other words, the message is, be faithful until your faith kills you. (laughs) So, and that's essentially what happened with Polycarp. His life went on, at least from the time of John's letter, for 60 years. And then he was faithful even unto death until his faith eventually got him killed. And so uh, that doesn't seem like such a a great message. Um, And yet, because of what we've already talked about, the concept that uh, righteous suffering will glorify us and bring us about the blessings. And that's where uh, in comes the uh, antithetical statement that is the last statement made here in this verse, that uh, if you are faithful unto death, then I will give thee a crown of life. And so this is the final paradoxical promise to the faithful dead. They are comforted with the assurance that if they are faithful unto death, the crown of life would then be theirs. Now, it's important to note that uh, there are two different types of crowns in the Greek language. One is Stephanos, which uh, means in Greek the word crown and is sometimes translated in the New Testament as crown. But this is a a garland of types, of a conqueror, or one who's rejoicing as at at a feast. Um, And that's the word that is used here in uh, this particular verse relating to the Smyrnian saints. They will, if faithful, receive a Stephanos, or a garland as one who is a conqueror um, after life's death. Now the second Greek word uh, that is translated as crown is a diadem and this is a symbol of a king and so you're not merely a conqueror but if you have a diadem that means you have kingship and this is the nature of the crown of eternal life because even though this word is translated uh, crown from the word Stephanos in a gospel sense you always, as a conqueror and as a victor of faith, receive a diadem type of crown or a crown of a king of eternal life. And so in, I want to quote now from uh, Bruce R. McConkie again. He said this, quote, in the gospel sense, a crown is the sign and symbol of eternal exaltation and dominion, of godhood in the kingdom of god. Paul speaks of such persons as having an incorruptible crown and as inheriting a crown of righteousness. James says that they shall receive the crown of life which the lord hath promised to them that love him. John records a similar affirmation, and Peter speaks of receiving a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The crowns so spoken of are crowns of eternal life. Of eternal lives of celestial glory close quote. So the the crown of life that we're talking about here in Revelation 2.10 is a well-suited symbol for the saints of Smyrna because crowns, meaning garlands slash Stephanos, were awarded victors at the Olympic Games that were held in this particular city. And that may very well be why John chose to use the word Stephanos uh, with reference to the crown of life rather than the diadem, crown of life, uh, because it's used to express or describe the victory of uh, people who participated in the Olympic Games in that city. But it paradoxically becomes a diadem or crown of royalty for faithful members of the church. And we see this reflected in Revelation uh, 3.11, which says, quote, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Close quote. We also see in a modern context a similar kind of statement in Doctrine and Covenants, section 78, verse 15, which says, quote, That you may come up unto the crown prepared for you and be made rulers over many kingdoms, saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Zion he hath established the foundations of Adam on Diamond. close quote. So that's the promises of the crown that, um, that we have today, as the Smyrnian saints did uh, many years ago. And so what we kind of have to ask ourselves at uh, at this point is, uh, do we have Smyrnians in our midst? Are you a Smyrnian saint? And you might initially say, you know what, my life is not filled with the kind of tribulations that the Smyrnian saints experienced in their day. And uh, and that's probably true. We see people in the church who go through great hardships, physical, emotional, mental, uh, loss of loved ones um, for reasons that cannot seem to be explained. And so we have these kind of people, and they are firm in the faith. And so, yeah, I think we have Smyrnian saints in our midst, Um, and hopefully all of us, if we are called to pass through trials and tribulations, can exhibit the same character and quality and attributes uh, demonstrated by the Smyrnians uh, in 96 AD and beyond. We can look to a man like Polycarp, uh, who provides a good example of uh, someone who displayed noble characteristics and was well deserving of a crown of life at the end of his life. And uh, so I I leave that with you and that hope for all of us. And I thank you for listening, for sharing, for subscribing. Thanks to Jenna Daly for the technical end of things. And next week we're going to be talking about Revelation 2.11, which coincides with section 19 in my book, and it talks about uh, second death. This still is another verse that relates specifically to the Smyrnian saints, but I cut it off and made it kind of its own separate section. Uh, because this concept of second death is a very big uh, concept and principle, and was a little bit more deserving of uh, time and attention. So we will get to that next week, and I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks.